Hello and welcome to Caged In, the Nicolas Cage podcast. On this special bonus episode for Halloween, I'll be talking to special effects artist Dan Martin, who had a hand in creating those iconic alpacas in the 2019 Richard Stanley film, Colour Out of Space. We also talk about many other projects that Dan has worked on, and please do expect spoilers for many of those. You'll find a full list and what time they are talked about in the show notes, so you can skip to certain points if you don't want to get spoilers on any of those films. This conversation was an absolute joy to have. For the past month or so, I've just been listening to Dan constantly on the Arrow video podcast with Sam and Dan and if you're not listening I say in the episode but I'm going to say it up front as well if you're not listening to that podcast get on it right now it's fantastic and they give outstanding recommendations for films some that are easy to find some that happen to be Arrow titles and others are curios and obscurities that seem nigh on impossible to find, but make it even more fun to listen to. So sit back and enjoy this conversation with Dan Martin. Today, I am joined by special effects artist and podcaster, Dan Martin. I feel like I am just treading over what you say <laughs> on the arrow podcast but as we said off mic for the past month or so since we agreed to to do this i've just binged listened to so much of your voice and i think that has come <laughs> dan martin is just ingrained with special effects artist podcast man <laughs> well, how are you, you though, dan? yeah i'm doing well man i'm doing well thank you thanks for having me no worries so yeah before we kind of get into your like how has like you've gone back to work since all the madness in the world yeah man it's been so busy since lockdown i i I think i'm 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 in the lucky position to be working in films of exactly the right size to deal with the post-covid or you know mid-covid post-lockdown situation um small enough that they can uh isolate people well take the proper procedures but big enough that they can afford the additional cost that comes with that with testing people with like the 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 quarantine measures and isolation measures and that kind of stuff so i've been very lucky like obviously a few big big films have have kicked back off but like the financial implications of one of those grinding to a halt and the statistical chance of one of those one of the crew getting covid of course because there are so many more people so you know batman shuts down twice jurassic park shuts down twice like you know these are big productions i remember on uh prometheus uh fox were like worried that the shoot was going to get delayed because of like build delays and design delays and that kind of stuff and the the number i heard kicking around was that each day of delay would increase the budget by a million dollars that is insane. So <laughs> imagine having to shut down for two weeks, you know? Yeah, and it's crazy as well. Like, I remember around the time of when the Batman shut down, we kind of had this weird thing in the news as well because we had, it was the height of Tenet being out at the cinema. So you had Warner Brothers with this, like, dual message of being like, we've yeah. had to shut down a production because of Corona. But at the same time, Please go to the cinema, which like you, our beloved audience, are significantly <laughs> less valuable to us than Robert Pattinson. <laughs> yeah. That, yeah, that I think that's what that's what uh, the <laughs> the film going public kind of uh, gathered from that mixed messaging. Yeah. But um, when talking about lockdown, obviously you were involved in Host, which was made at the height of lockdown. Am I correct? Yeah, 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 yeah. Like um, it was. So it was just far enough into lockdown that the <clears throat> the message that like certain not essential work that could be done sensibly was still allowed. So I was able to drive, like so not taking public transport, to drive to my workshop and then completely alone, knocking about in this big old space, to design and make the makeups for host. And then they got uh, sterilized, packed away, kept for two days, and then sh- like sealed, and then shipped over to the actors. 
and then on Zoom I would teach them how to apply stuff. So they had spares for the for the class that we did online. And That's amazing. Was, like hanging out in the background when we shot the sequences on a hidden window. And then as and when I was needed, I would be brought back up into the stream and I would talk them through the different stages. As a fan of like special features and extras, is all of that stuff recorded for yes. uh, amazing? I can't I can't wait for like a, a Blu-ray release of host to see all of yeah, it's, potentially it's, all of that 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 because the the mechanisms of how that would work just fascinate me in the kind of like especially watching it like with like rigs of cupboards like bursting open and stuff like that it's like ha, like just like my my I could understand how it would work if you had people in the house but to like teach people to do that is like that's amazing yeah well I mean to be <laughs> honest my my involvement in it was exclusively on the makeup effects mm. side. So yeah, yeah. when Rob and Dougie Cox, his producer, uh, decided that they, you know, that they were able or were approached to do the feature version, the way they um, they considered it was let's make a list of all of the people we know who can do cool things, and work out how we can thread a story around that. So I can do stuff largely remotely. James Swanton, who plays the the ghost for a few seconds, did his own makeup for that um, because he has a background in theatre um, and does that kind of like sort of particularly with his interest in sort of the silent German era cinema mm-hmm. era. Um, he can do that sort of Veidt esque makeup himself very proficiently. But then they like they've got friends who do stunts, they've got friends who do VFX. So there's loads and loads of um, of really great stuff that they've. Uh, I mean, really, it just comes down to the planning of it. You know, the, the, they've, yeah. they've they've created a jigsaw. Well, yeah, and there's the um, there's the like the thing with well, host specifically. I'm kind of glad it was made when it was made as well, because I think for the kind of audience, I'm glad that 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 film is done now. Hopefully, we don't get uh, a spate of kind of lockdown based horrors because it's. I don't know, like, even even now, it's kind of like thinking about, like, the height of lockdown is a bit like, oh, that was a real drag. It feels years ago. <laughs> uh, yeah, time has lost all meaning. It was a million years ago, and yet it was yesterday. It's very weird. But I, th- I think, I do think that, you know, there was a big conversation at the beginning of lockdown about how you go forwards with the creative arts um, post that, because it's, you know, we no one writing during lockdown, like, you know, some professional writer friends were saying, you know, we're writing stuff now, you know, this is a great opportunity to get stuff done, haha. But who fucking knows what the world's going to be like on the other yeah. side of this? Like, you know, do, like, do you just write everything set in the 90s until we've all worked out what we're going to do after? <laughs> like, yeah, it's that. And when is that film actually going to go into production? Because exactly. It feels like there's a backup. We're seeing all of these films that were supposed to be this year are just kind of like Candyman's jumping like a year. We've got things just teeter and teeter and further yeah, and yeah. further back. Um, but obviously, yeah, with you've had like both ends of it. You've made a film during lockdown and you've had a film come out at least in the, the States and yeah. has premiered at the London Film Festival you worked on, The Amazing Possessor. It blew my mind. It's definitely like uh, up there as film of the year for me. Oh, thank you very much. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's an amazing... I, I love the movie. I'm incredibly pleased I got to be part of it. Um, and, yeah, like, ev- everyone involved was both fantastic and absolutely lovely. Like, the, the stereotype of the nice Canadian is well-earned. Well, yeah, I see a lot of uh, interviews with Brandon Cronenberg uh, specifically, and I just... When I, when I see him talk, I'm like... I feel like I could have a. He, he seems so personable and just like he is lovely. Da- yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like that. Um, when when I saw him at uh, the yeah saw Possessor at the London Film Festival, immediately I just put out an open call onto Twitter and said, "Does anybody like know a PR contact for Brandon Cronenberg?" More than anything, I was like, "I'd just like to interview him because I think it would just be a lovely chat." Um, yeah, he's a but, really really nice guy. So yeah, in regards to I guess using Possessor as a a case study of like how does a how how do you get get a job basically how does it go from so i've been i've been very lucky in that it's almost exclusively been word of mouth and recommendation 
for the for the bulk of my career, which is kind of the best possible situation. Like I'm I'm very lucky. Um, the first feature that I designed um, was based on a short that I had done, and I was recommended to the director by a mutual friend, um, and that was Johannes Roberts F, which uh, and and you know again, you can do great effects on one can do great effect on a terrible film and no one will ever see it so i've been very very lucky in the the wagons i've been you know the, the, the in with who has yeah, that yeah. phrase work <laughs> 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 who i've been able to hitch my wagon to you know um so i've done a few films with johannes uh, who directed that um my wife jennifer handorf uh, is a producer and she did a series of shorts for fright fest one of which was directed by ben wheatley and it was through that that I met Ben and his producer Andy, um, and Andy was one of the producers on Possessor, so that's how I got Possessor. But it's also obviously, uh, you know, I've done so many of the, the Wheatley films. Peter Strickland's uh, In Fabric I did because of Andy was a producer on that. Um, so, you know, I think it's, I take it as a great compliment that these these clients keep coming back. That I'm that I'm, you know, I get so much repeat custom from these people. But I think that also reflects well on me. And means that, you know, when you when you look at someone's work and you see that they have these ongoing relationships, I, I think that speaks quite well of them. Well, yeah, definitely. And uh, with Possessor as well, it is a film that is being like lauded for its use, and it seems to be in a lot of the interviews that it is all practical effects as well. And it seems to be like like Brandon Cronenberg himself in a few interviews I've like watched or listened to, your name has come up time and time again, and it's like. I think like it is a bit like it's a massive selling point of this of of possessor. I, I don't know. I think we've got to this point of just so much CG work and VFX to see like practical effects back on screen and the 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 effects that you do as well. And there's uh, what well, yeah, there's a few few things in my notes that uh, uh, I, I wanted to to to. Um, like ask you about and uh, i'm gonna go straight in with the juggler on this one is uh all my note says here is andrea riseborough's dick was that a prosthetic <laughs> or was that a body double uh that was a prosthetic um so uh i think it might have been one of the very first things brandon mentioned to me perfect um and then when i got the script it wasn't in the script uh and i was like oh okay you know things change between whatever and then I was chatting to Brandon on the phone and he was like, oh, by the way, the dick is still in there, but we've just taken it out because some financial financiers might get a bit antsy about it and whatever. And he was waiting to like work with Andrew a little bit more and mention it to her, to pitch it to her. But she pitched it to him. She suggested it Amazing. to him without him having said anything. So it was immediately back on the table. But what was... Um, hilarious was we had to we had to convincingly replicate uh chris's penis because it's yes. meant to be his <laughs> yes yes but and she had to sign off on it because she had to be comfortable with what, how it was presented so basically just sending like fake dick pics across the atlantic <laughs> uh to be passed on to the to the concerned bodies um and then when we were over there uh, we put together an all-female crew for that for that makeup. Uh, my key effects artist, my key prosthetics artist, Tracy Loder, uh, who was my right hand out there, absolutely amazing person, amazing artist. Um, she headed up the application on that. Um, Sasha Pollock, who's a local makeup artist, um, and her did that. Um, yeah, it was amazing. I, obviously, I wasn't I wasn't on set for that. I you know I distanced yeah, yeah. myself away from the application. Um, but it's, it sounds like, you know, everyone took it very seriously, but ultimately it was, they had a bit of fun with it. Yeah. 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 And obviously like as a, as a viewer, like that is one of like, especially watching it, knowing I was going to speak to you, I was kind of had that eye of like, what is, what, what would have that like for a better phrase? What was like, what has Dan's hands been on? Do you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> like uh, no, no, yeah, that's, what, that's why I said for want of a better, but the kind of, yeah, the the effects, especially the like dream sequences or kind of hallucinogenic sequences, and 
Uh, recently, you posted like—is uh, it like a flesh tube? Like oh, the flesh trench. Of... Yes, yes, that was. Yeah, um, yeah. Again, like it's such a—it was such a big thing for such a short moment. But I—I I think that's being able to do those things where you you know because obviously if you're trying to get a budget down those are the places you immediately start cutting stuff it's like well this is whatever percent of the spend but it's going to be 12 frames so let's lose it um but because we had such a long run-up on possessor because initially it was going to be shot in the uk and then it was going to be split between the uk and canada then it stayed in canada but by that point i was on board and i was incredibly flattered that they they kept me on even though it meant you know, me flying out to, to Canada to do it. Um, and and so we were able to really, like, hone what we were doing down to what was important for Brandon to tell the story. But also, um, like, we, we got to be... We got to present the illusion of frivolity. <laughs> um, so, so, yeah, we did get to do some of those those bigger gags. And uh, even if they were only on, on screen for a few seconds. And the flesh trench was one of my favorites, just because it's, it's such a weird thing to get to make. Yeah. Um, and we did the, the little tests, which are the things I posted on, on Instagram. Uh, and then, yeah, the big one. I think uh, the director of photography, Kareem Hussein, has the, the, the full size flesh trench at home. Amazing. God knows what he's doing with it. It is over a meter long, it's an <laughs> absolute monstrosity. <laughs> Well, and speaking of like, uh, yeah, people working on the film, keeping things. Recently, Brandon Cronenberg wore the uh, Andrea Riseborough mask <laughs> yeah. that, that that you created uh, to accept accept an award. So, yeah, what is the kind of process for? Yeah, obviously, I'm just I'm going speak to me like I'm an idiot. Basically, what is the process to make something like a mask is like, for? For that and like well, how did that come about like so we had live casts done for us of most of the key casts because they weren't ba none of them were in the uk at the time that it happened so uh we had uh cast done in america in over in mainland europe in canada and we had the negative molds of these live casts uh sent to us the live casts were done in silicon we had the them sent to us we poured molten clay into them and adjusted them as we needed to clean them up and then we molded them for the for the final molds so through that process we ended up with a fiberglass version of chris so we had two life casts done each of chris and andrea um two of sean bean um one of the guy who played um uh, elio mazza the, the big chap at the yep. in the in the restaurant at the beginning um uh, and the reason we had the two done of uh of the three cast was that we would have a passive like a sort of at rest neutral life cast done on which we can sculpt prosthetics and masks and that kind of stuff and then we had expressive casts done to represent that would turn into puppets that because they have to be cast with the expression or something at least close to the expression that we want so sean obviously had his grimacing life cast <laughs> done <laughs> um Chris had his uh, his grimace done for the transition, the melt sequences, yeah. um, as did Andrea. And then because we had a, a sort of a reference copy of Andrea there, um, we sculpted on top of uh, Chris's life cast uh, this sort of baggy, distorted version um, of Andrea's face. Uh, Rachel Mao, uh, a young sculptor and an ex-student of mine, was in the in the studio and she took point on that sculpt and did a beautiful job. Um, so yeah, once we've got that sculpt finish, um, it gets molded in fiberglass. Uh, silicon is then injected between the fiberglass life cast of Chris and the fiberglass negative mold of the mask. So it fills that space and creates the mask. Um, I then paint it. Um, uh, Anna Chacon, who's my UK hair tech, punched the hero mask, uh, which is the one that Brandon wore at the awards. Uh, we had two more that I had out in Canada that were punched by, I think, Tanil Shockey uh, did the um, did the the two that we had hair punched out there. Um, yeah, I mean that's the thing. There's often there's more versions of something than you perhaps realize because you only see one of them at once yeah, yeah. but we have the one that, that got torn apart um 
trying to remember why we had the third one. <laughs> it was a long time ago. Um, but yeah, so so yeah, there's a lot of a lot of processes go into into one thing, and obviously that one got quite a lot of screen time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like those you mentioned, the meld sequences where they kind of like transition between each other, they are like. I, I don't know how to, like, it is a film that needs to be seen to be believed, I think, and, like, it's got that, I don't know, like, those, those and there's moments in this film as well that, and it's down to, like, the work that obviously you guys have done that are really upsetting. Like, even from, like, that kind of, <laughs> that opening throat slit is horrifying. Like, it's just, and, yeah, so, like, I guess we'll get into this a bit more on uh, another film you worked on, but the kind of like the the re yeah, what is your research for for stuff for for kind of effects work? Well, it's interesting. Like something like Possessor is so uh, like stylized, mm -hmm. but with anything like the casualty stuff, you really have to ground it. So the the stabbing at the beginning is you know we try to be very clinical about it, but then when you get into the more sort of aesthetic stuff then there's m that's much more about a conversation between brandon and myself and obviously he signs off on everything i you know not just barreling ahead but um but there's a lot of fun to be had in those in the sort of the loose areas where you're you're finding um uh sort of representative stuff and yeah to talk about a film where it's kind of i guess a lot of research would have had to been done because it's based on real life and Unfortunately for me, I've seen one of the photos that I guess would have been a reference point for you yes. is Lords of Chaos uh, that you worked on. Uh, so, yeah, so with something like that, and again, like some horrific kind of stuff seen on screen, but works to the film. And obviously, yeah, if you are, I don't know, sick in the head like I was when I was a teenager going, what, there's photos of this guy who committed suicide is yeah. is is that like kind of the research you have to do to replicate like stuff like that or yeah i mean on on lords of chaos uh mm -hmm. jonas jonas got as the police reports on the on the murder oh, wow. at the end uh, obviously the suicide photograph is, is pretty famous because mayhem used it as an album cover mm -hmm. um before people like the people printing it didn't know that it wasn't fake yeah. fake yeah exactly um so yeah i mean like literally just today i was sculpting uh some casualty makeups and i needed a particular type of injury uh which wasn't something that i i just have in my head like you know mm -hmm. things you, you see enough of this stuff after a while you can you, you know you'll touch back in medical textbooks and that kind of stuff but for the most part you get a good idea of of what happens to the body under most circumstances yeah, yeah but then when a script comes along that has something very specific in it sometimes you do need to go and look stuff up um uh i'm very lucky in that my father-in-law is a pathologist <laughs> so <laughs> i can i can ask him for um for advice on stuff and definitely for feedback although we often get caught up in that conversation about like film reel versus real reel because sometimes if it's not if the if the reality of a situation isn't something that the audience would expect it can take them out of a moment just as much as something that was unrealistic could so you there is to some degree an element of fine tuning the depiction of reality to be within the parameters of something that the audience can handle can expect because unless you're doing a forensic tv show like you know like um Waking the Dead or something, where you can have people literally explain to the audience by mm -hmm. by method of talking to each other, oh, well, no, actually, this peculiar-looking thing means this. And, oh, no, you would find this inside the human body, or mm -hmm. this is what this looks like. But for the most part, if you're doing an action film or a horror film or something like that, you can't go presenting the audience with stuff that they that surprises them in that way, because it'll, it'll take them out of the moment. Um, yeah, so... To, to answer your original question, yes, I do occasionally have to look at grotesque and horrible things. I am to some degree inured, um, but I mean, you know, it's certainly not something that I relish. It's not the not the bit of the. Oh yeah, no, no, no. Like <laughs> that, like obviously the the story of Mayhem and the film Lords of Chaos. Like uh, I watched it a second time to do that, and just blown away because it kind of plays. So it plays weird, doesn't it? Because it kind of has this 
almost stereotypical like lads like starting a band at the beginning but then this dark story that it leads into and well like true to life to some degree story of a trap like a tragedy of of young men getting caught up in this world of uh, norwegian black metal right yeah i mean yeah it, it is ultimately a very sad story and i think it's about unchecked naivete mm-hmm. um combined with with some problematic egos and one particularly unpleasant well two <laughs> yes. particularly unpleasant individuals um you know one of them has lived long enough to show that he was just a piece of shit <laughs> yeah, yeah 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 yeah. but but who knows you know the other kids um you know people go through some dark shit and sometimes they can progress and get better and sometimes they're just a fucking edgelord for life <laughs> yeah 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 like, yeah most people it's just i don't know maybe uh kicking in a phone box when they're 15 maybe not so much uh burning down churches but yes uh, i've heard you talk about before the how like obviously the church burnings in uh lords of chaos how they were achieved? Do you mind? Do you mind? Te- yeah, not at all. The list. I mean, I, I I wasn't there for this. This was right at the end, <laughs> yeah. but this is something that Jonas told me. Um, so, Lords of Chaos was partially funded by RSA, Ridley Scott's uh, production company, um, uh, by Scott Free rather. RSA is his advertising um, arm, and um, and they'd just finished shooting the new Blade Runner at the time. And so most of the close-ups of burning church are actually the sets from Blade Runner being set on <laughs> fire, uh, because that was also happening over in the same area of Europe. That's that that that's a that's yeah that's fantastic. Like that's I don't know. It's a great like I, lo- I love those little insights and like the the crossover from and I guess I don't know uh, Lords of Chaos was a small like definitely a smaller budget film. Like, like well yeah could it be burn. Uh, building replicas of churches yeah. anyway to 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 burn them down uh one one film we've got to talk about i guess uh that i'm i'm quite reticent to talk about is uh your work on the 2011 human centipede <laughs> 2 uh so um how did you kind of get into the sphere of tom six and how did you get involved in that project so i wasn't the head designer on that i Mm -hmm. was actually called in uh so a chap who i had worked with very early in my career uh, by the name of john schoonrad who had started out at the jim henson's creature workshop as their uh head life caster so he ran all the life casts for them back in the day um and i met him right at the beginning of him setting up his own company um uh, and they just moved into Ealing Studios uh, and they were taking on loads of different stuff. He had done, he, as a designer, he was still comparatively new. Um, as, a, as, an art, as an effects artist, he was kind of an old hand. He was one of the old boys. Like I think his second job was fiberglassing the big boulder at the beginning of uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Amazing. Um, <laughs> Have I got that? That's, it is it's Raiders that has the boulder at the beginning, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm not too au fait on, on the... Uh, they all blur into it one might for be, me. It might be, <laughs> but I'm pretty sure it's Raiders. It's been a very, very long time. But yeah, he's actually pushing it. He's behind it. When you see that scene, he, <laughs> him brilliant. and um, Kenny Wilson, uh, I was told, uh, were two young mold makers at the time and were, just put, were behind it, rolling it down the studio to give it brilliant. that momentum. So yeah, he'd been around for absolutely ages. He'd like Medusa Touch, and I think he was on Life Force. Like loads and loads of really great stuff. Um, but as a designer, he'd just done the fourth Rambo film, Rambo or John Rambo, depending on what country you're in, um, which obviously had loads of really fantastic like gore stuff in it. Um, and he just landed the uh, second Human Centipede film, and he. But then another job came in, like a bigger job, because uh, Second Human Centipede wasn't vast. And he phoned me up and said, "Do you want to come in and run this for me?" And I think they'd made like. They'd made the the fake bums already, <laughs> yeah. and they'd done a bunch of the live cast, but that was about it. Um, so I sort of came in and in his studio, kind of ran things, and then ran everything on set. Um, and it was an absolute like hoot. I had a great great time with it. Um, really early on, I said, and I forgive me, I know you've listened to a lot of the podcast recently, so you may have heard this. Already, <laughs> but, um, really early on, I said to Tom. Um, 
it would be imprudent of me not to. I don't want to talk us out of work. Certainly, don't want to talk John out of work. But um, I feel like a lot of this stuff's going to get cut. Like you're not going to be allowed to show this stuff. Uh, and Tom was like, "Well, that's the whole point, you know." The kickback on the first movie was, you know, after it became a cultural phenomenon, like a lot of people online were like, "Oh, it's not actually that gory. Oh, it's really, you know, once it's just the idea." He's like, "So I'm going to give them the most fucked up film ever. I want it to be like unwatchably vile." And I was like, "Oh, like Salo?" And he's like, "Yeah, like Salo." <laughs> so that was it. From then on, like in for a penny, in for a pound, just make it as fucking horrible as possible. Perfect. Well, yeah, there's a thing, and I guess it's a lot of film fans. So, like, I, with stuff like Salo and and this, as much as, like, I was reticent to watch it, there is, I'm plagued with this morbid curiosity at the same time. Yeah. Like, uh, yeah, I, ma- I imagine you're somebody who possibly suffers with this too. And it's like, yeah. I, I, not just to, like, see, and I guess working on something like this in an effects uh, standpoint must be a blast right because there is so much kind of i don't know gore and grimy stuff to kind of that you need to have a hand in to do and like i is is it me i just need to get this off my it's all in black and white but it's the poo in brown you, yes that is correct yeah 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 yeah, yeah <laughs> perfect yeah yeah <laughs> um and actually it's the uh for the for the solid shit in that film um, uh, it's the recipe. There's Pasolini's recipe from Salo. It's the same, the same recipe. Perfect. <laughs> so yeah, you. Well, I, I hope you don't mind me saying you were you were kind enough to send me the uncut version of this film, uh, so I could get every. Well, as you said, I probably wouldn't have seen many of the 80 percent of of our work yeah yeah exactly (laughs) if if i'd watched the 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 cut version which i i now own on dvd with uh, some limited edition postcards that i guess will (laughs) never be sent to anyone (laughs) um but yeah there's a few but my notes here just read like the like the book that the uh main character would have because it's kind of the (laughs) i'll just kind of uh i don't possibly just to show how mad I, I sound. Uh, my notes readers, sandpaper cock, hay, uh, caved in head, teeth, knee, tongue, poo, baby, barbed wire cock. <laughs> yes. Uh, that's, yeah, that's, that's a pretty thorough list. Yeah. I'm trying to think if there's anything I missed out. Uh, wristlet. But that probably, that feels kind of a uh, run of the mill compared to the rest of it. And so in the cut version, how much of how much of that is gone? <laughs> well, originally, um, the BBFC returned uh, a verdict saying that it was impossible to cut it and they just wow. couldn't release it. Um, and so, like, a big deal, a relatively big deal, was made of the fact that it was the first film banned by the BBFC since whenever. Mm-hmm. And the BBFC re- resented this comment and said, <laughs> we haven't banned it, we've just said that it is un- impossible to give it an 18 rating. Uh, the myth will be printed yeah Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly and also there's not that much difference but um then uh yeah the people distributing it in the uk went away and and hacked at it and actually managed to get it to a place where the bbfc said yeah you can release this i think the argument initially was that they felt that it wasn't possible to release a coherent film once it had been that heavily cut but they did a you know they they managed it and um uh, and yeah and that's the version that's out in the uk uh, which is a shame, I think. It played uncut at Fright Fest, um, but unlike America, we don't have that sort of fetishization of um, of freedom of speech in mm-hmm. our art, and therefore we don't have the unrated versions. We don't have uh, all that kind of stuff, which seems silly. But so um, I, I don't. Yeah, where where? Well, let's kind of backtrack a little. Yeah, how did you first start off in in effects? Like, wh- what was your first job and I and my first my first job paying job was uh was a photo shoot for cradle of filth (laughs) (laughs) amazing um I was uh in Camden uh visiting a friend uh my friend Tony who we mentioned on the podcast quite a lot 
who used to have an amazing shop in Camden called Psychotronic. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was kind of an amazing like go-to place. I met loads of cool people there. I almost got a job on a trauma film because I bumped into Lloyd Kaufman in Tony's shop. Perfect. And obviously, if you if you mention to Lloyd that you do makeup effects, he's like, well, now you have a job. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I almost did... Um, Schlock and Schlockability, which was a James Gunn script that never never got photographed. Wow. I still have a copy of the script. Um, and then I almost did an earlier version of Poltergeist as well. But um, Danny was in the shop buying an original John Wayne Gacy painting that Tony had. As you um, do. Yeah, of the of four Disney characters. Uh, <laughs> like a sort of little uh, montage picture painting that he'd done. And... Um, and I got chatting to him and his production designer, Phil Bertham, was there. Um, uh, yeah, and they had a they had a photo shoot coming up and they needed some stuff making. And I was, like, so young. <laughs> um, I must have been, like, 16, 17, maybe. Wow. And I was, I mean, you know, I was saying I'm an effects artist. I wasn't an effects artist. I was a kid that wanted to be an effects artist. Um, and I, you know, I went and I did a day of photo shoot stuff. It was all direct application makeup. I don't think I made anything in advance, like maybe a couple of little bits and bobs mm-hmm. here, but it was all like builds, like sort of latex and tissue paper and wax and that kind of stuff. Because it was stills, it didn't that didn't matter so much. Um, and you know, I'd been up until that point, I'd just been doing stuff on my own short films and and with messing about with friends. Um, and yeah, like I, the gap between that and my next like proper paid job was quite big. Like, mm-hmm. you know, you, you just keep doing it. And if, if it's something you love, it's you're doing it even if you're not being paid. And eventually someone will pay you. <laughs> what, what were the films that you were kind of like watching as a kid that like kind of you first started to notice like effects work and go, oh, that's something I want to do? Like, I, I didn't see, like, when I was really young, I just didn't see that many movies. We didn't have a TV mm-hmm. at home for, for quite a long period of my life. We didn't have a VHS player um, for, a, for a while. Um, but then as soon as we got one, I was just consuming absolutely everything that I could. Um, and then as soon as I met that one, like, you know, all genre fans remember of, of a certain age. I think it doesn't matter this much anymore. But around my age and older, every genre fan remembers the first time they met someone who could get hold of the uncut versions of things, you know. So nowadays, everything's online. Like you can, like you can either legally import the unrated Blu-ray of Human Centipede Two, or it's on any number of unsalubrious, you know, sites. Um, and the, you know, I, I met this uh, this Scottish chap called Sandy. <laughs> a friend of mine, I must have been, how old was I? I must have been like sort of 14, 15. Uh, and he lived in the same block of flats as a friend of mine. And uh, and he had Tenebrae, Anthropophagus Beast. <laughs> uh, what else? Like, n- like not a vast number of films, but like, they were certainly things like I'd never seen before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then the the other side of that was that my I don't have godparents, but the the friends of my parents who would have been my godparents if I had godparents, the aunties um, and uncles. Yeah, exactly. Lived in uh, Amsterdam, mm-hmm. and so me and my family, when I was quite young, would go to Amsterdam relatively regularly. Um, but you know, just like family family stuff. But it meant that when I turned 16, my parents let me just go to Amsterdam on my own with my then girlfriend. <laughs> and obviously what I did was take a spare bag and just go to the video stores. And I came back with like Driller Killer and Cannibal Holocaust and all these things that you just couldn't get in the UK at the time. So, yeah, I mean, I was just sort of consuming as much of it as possible. The thing is, by that point, I was already very much aware of the fact that I wanted to be an effects artist. That, that stemmed back way earlier. Like when I was sort of like eight like maybe a bit younger i was into magic um and special effects when i found out that it was even a thing felt very much like magic but you know for another purpose to, mm-hmm. to another end um i saw the movie of pet cemetery when i was quite young that must have been an early one 
Um, I watched The Cook, The Thief, His Wife and Her Lover pretty much endlessly because it was one of only three tapes in the house. So I'd set my alarm for the middle of the night and when my parents were asleep, I could just come downstairs and, and watch The Cook, The Thief, His Wife and Her Lover again. Not that it's got a huge amount of effects in it, but... Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I think the kind of... The comparable thing of, like, finding films that... Whereas, yeah, I'm, I'm possibly slightly younger, younger than you, uh, that my thing was taping something off the TV and then the tape would run and then you would get the film afterwards. So that I think that's where like my kind of, and sometimes you wouldn't get the whole film depending on how long. Oh, torture. How long the tape was, but then it would be, it would be kind of seeing like the start of Hellraiser or something like that when I was far too young or there being an, like an age gap and, like my brother and sister being five years older and kind of being like, well, we're watching this. Like, you're going to have to sit in the room anyway because we're looking after you. And it's like, okay. Like, and, and it's it, time like, for Texas Chainsaw Massacre. <laughs> yeah. Or like, even stuff, I remember like just really young memories. And I guess it's something like, something that's talked about at the moment as well is uh, Nicholas Rogue's The Witches. Yeah. 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 Of course. Because of the remake. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, I remember, like, I think that was uh, one of the first films for me where I was like, this is terrifying. But then that, I think it's where that, like, morbid curiosity came from in films is that thing of, it's terrifying, but at the same time, I really want to watch it. And, like, delight. Yeah, what are those, what are those kind of like, what is that on her face? Like, like, and how, and obviously that is, or that, that was Henson, right? Who did the, Oh my goodness. Uh, yeah, I mean, that sounds right, but to be completely honest, <laughs> off the top of my head, I don't know. A quick fact check, and it was in fact the Jim Henson workshop that worked on Nicholas Rogue's 1990 The Witches. It was also Jim Henson who managed to persuade Roald Dahl to let Nicholas Rogue adapt the film in the first place. After seeing Nicholas Rogue's previous films, Roald Dahl thought they were just going to be too dark for a child audience. And perhaps he might have been right. Amazing. Uh, so you got a cover on Fangoria with um, the girl on the third floor. Which... Yeah, like I got a, I got, I'm in the the little cell, the film cell on the corner. Like there's still still buckets on the list. <laughs> well, like at least your the the creature you created was the cover oh, right yeah uh, no 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 like so that was the us was the cover oh us sorry. was the cover and then they have the little film strip down the side mm-hmm. and i'm in no way demeaning what a big deal that was for me. <laughs> so that was huge but you know i still have goals <laughs> but yeah that was that was great that was really nice and you know to be featured in it um was was an absolute delight and they, i've been interviewed by them since as well so i've had a, a like an actual article about me as well so that was like that's yeah, two definite big boxes ticked. Amazing. Well, that's like it's the yeah the effects work in that are uh, is is great. Like that that woman with the rope around her face is yeah. is terrifying. I've spent the last week. I've I've spent like many people for October trying to watch a horror movie a day and kind of cramming in the prep for this whilst doing that as well. And it happens to be this week. Uh, the rest of the people who live in my house have gone away for the week so i've just kind of got this like month's worth of horror in my in my head and then yeah then that now now i'm alone and like i think that's one of the films that's really stuck with me is uh, the girl on the third floor so what was it like to work in a quote-unquote real haunted house as... no, no. i'm afraid <laughs> i'm uh, I'm, a, I'm on the cynical side of things there although i did uh rather maybe unfairly um enjoy uh trolling some of the more uh credulous members of the crew <laughs> <laughs> by uh, asking asking them leading questions about the uh, their their emotional experiences in this haunted house air quotes <laughs> um yeah i mean yeah it's just it's just a house it's just a house yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but what's that yeah what was the experience of working on that film because there's as i said there's that great like creature design on yeah is, is a woman with like rope yeah, rope. yeah 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 um so uh yeah it was it was a weird one so i got contacted um about that one because 
so I basically I got that job off the back of Lords of Chaos. So uh, Travis Stevens, who had been a producer for a while, for for a long while, and before that was a sales agent, so had, you know done his time in the industry. He was getting to direct his first feature. Uh, he, when asked who he wanted to do the effects, he said, "I want the guy who did Lords of Chaos." Uh, and one of the producers on the movie, who's based in the UK, said, "Oh, yeah, I know Dan. <laughs> I'll, I'll just get him on the phone." <laughs> Um, uh, and we chatted, we clicked pretty quickly. Uh, I did a couple of little tests and they were like, we fucking love this. Um, and I, I got the job. I, uh, didn't get to meet any of the cast ahead of time. I had some photographs. Um, I got some head measurements for our creature performer. Um, mm -hmm. but all of that stuff was sculpted without ever having seen her, uh, using generic live casts from my library. Um, but it's a, it's an interesting one. It's it's a lot of people love it, um, and that's that's awesome. Like it's really nice. But it was surprising that I got like that the first thing that really got that kind of attention was essentially one I'd done on my own, like myself and Anna, who I mentioned, who did the hair work on um, the UK based hair work on Possessor. That was just the two of us. Like she did the hair punching for the mask for the girl. Mm -hmm. um, and for some of the other pieces and then everything else like normally when a job comes in it's big enough that i have to have in other sculptors or mold makers or whatever i i paint almost everything myself but otherwise it, it becomes like and i'm all over everything like i'm a horrible micromanager but <laughs> um but but you know it's very much a team sport but with that one that was just us like the two of us doing nothing else like she she she's got experience outside of the hair punching as well so she did a bit of mold making for me did a bit of seaming um but yeah it was an unusually like it was a really small one and then i got over there and i was living in an apartment with travis and uh courtney and hillary Anderjar, who were the production designers and who are incredible um and uh yeah we were living like a minute walk from the like diametrically opposite at a crossroads from our haunted house um it was yeah it was absolutely brilliant and like, yeah, there's some other great like effects in that film, whether it's like the peeling of the skin or the the like pulsating like living wall, like yeah, the latex membrane wall. <laughs> yeah, which is like, and it's a film that is kind of like it, I don't know, it's oozing with goo, like it's like something. Yeah, like like yeah, like I like now I'm I'm kind of a bit hesitant to kind of like go near any plug sockets or like. Like if I see a marble, I'm a bit like, oh, fuck, that, can, that can piss off. <laughs> Being a Nicolas Cage podcast, the one thing I do have to talk to you about, obviously, is Colour Out of Space. What was that experience like and working with the magical Richard Stanley? I mean, magical is very much the right word for Richard. Uh, I said earlier I'm a cynic, but I think if anyone is actually magical, it's probably Richard. Um, yeah, he was amazing. Uh, everything. Like, and he obviously clicked with Nick beautifully like their both their their forms of magic worked very well together and they got on very well together um I I'd seen uh Hardware and Dust Devil uh when I was quite young um Tony used to have some of the props from Hardware in his shop in Camden so I see them on the reg like a big fat guy whose eyes get drilled out he had one of those heads in the <laughs> uh in in the shop um yeah, I mean that was that was absolutely uh, like super super exciting to get involved in that. And Richard was really nice; it was great to work with. Um, really open to suggestion, but also really like 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 if you met him briefly and you and he wasn't like and he wasn't talking much, like you know, just his general demeanor is definitely one of an acid casualty. <laughs> like he, you would be mm -hmm. forgiven for thinking that he wasn't like you know maybe very sharp anymore. But actually, he's like a fucking razor. Like he knows exactly what he wants, and he's so so switched on to to all of the minutiae that go into into what he's doing. Well, yeah, the rare times you see an interview pop up with him, or uh, the fantastic Lost Souls documentary about yeah. Island of Doctor Moreau, he is just like on it, and it is this kind of thing that he's drifting off to this other planet. But then it's like he knows what he's talking about, and it's always fascinating. Uh, and I guess I'd be remiss not to ask you about the alpacas. Uh, how, 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 how were they created? Are they miniatures? Are they were they? Yeah. So we had uh, two different scales of alpaca. We had a one-to-one -one full-size uh, mechanical puppet uh, of sort of neck up, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we had three more uh, of the same puppet, but without all of the mechanics in it for just like filling out background shots when you get those dirty, like over the shoulder shots of the characters coming into the barn. Um, we had uh, several that you could blow up that <laughs> could have pyrotechnic charges inside their skulls. Um, we had one that had already been blown up, but with sort of artwork to bleeding stump. Uh, and then we had the, the, the multi alpaca which was done at a quarter scale uh, and was the sort of the writhing mess that you see yeah. for a moment in the barn. Um, and then we also had some one-to-one segments that would for when Nick is, is letting off the shotgun. So we had some body panels, some individual legs that could be shot out, that kind of stuff. And there's that, and then there's that kind of uh, back of the pickup truck full of like, animals as well that was that 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 would have been you right like well actually no that was that was kind of uh sprung on us and ended up falling to the art department so a lot of that stuff is is just from a butcher's although if you look uh, if you if you (laughs) cast your eye across it and i wasn't there for that day if you cast your eye across it the placeholder for the cat so when the when they're when they're driving back and they see the cat briefly on the road so that's a digital paint over of a physical puppet that we did. And it was always going to be the way we had the, the puppet so they could f- film something so that you could see the light, the lights travel across yeah. something that the, that the VFX team would then animate more. So we had a sort of a uh, like front three quarters of the cat on a mm-hmm. stand that could be used as a photographic element. That cat body ends up in the back of the truck. So you do briefly <laughs> <laughs> see it completely free of any CGI in the back of the truck. Perfect. And uh, yeah, uh, one last thing before I let you go, Dan, is to talk about the the like the melding of Jolie Richardson and uh, Julian Hillard's characters. Uh, it, how how was that put together? Is that is that a mixture again of CG and practical yes, effects? yeah, yeah, yeah. I, this was this was un, unlike Possessor. This one does have a lot of of CG sort of like stitching, mm-hmm. uh, stitches and glue. Um, the the shot of the meld that is closest to being entirely practical is the overhead shot in the attic um, when the final stage mother son hybrid scuttles across the floor and the only digital work on that shot is removing a puppeteer that's operating the back leg. Um, so it's terrifying stuff. <laughs> and thank you, thank you very much. Uh, yeah, that was really really fun. Um, that's a that's a massive puppet. Um, worn by a creature performer called Lucy Ridley, um, who's a sort of dancer, movement artist, um, generally like fantastic and very limber person. Um, she's inside it. She is, its front arms are higher arms with extensions. Its side legs are bunraku pulled to her legs. So her real legs were sticking out the bottom of that creature. But those two legs are... Um, mechanical hips and hinges for the knees and um, mechanical hips and knees and its feet were, po- were connected via poles to her feet so when she stepped it stepped um, then Tom Tui who was my roboticist on that one was operating the replica of Julian's face that is in the back of that creature which you do see very briefly in the film <laughs> so he had a little mechanical puppet of Julian's face in her back um, and then Dan Goma another one of on my team um, was following behind uh, Rod puppeting the last, the, the back, like the very, very back leg. Um, so yeah, that was all, all uh, quite a, quite a to do. <laughs> Perfect. Well, uh, I'll yeah, I'll let you go, Dan. Uh, it's been amazing uh, chatting to you. Uh, where can people find you online if they want to see what you're up to and where you are? Um, uh, on both Twitter and Instagram, I'm at Thirteen Finger FX. Um, it's yeah. It's occasionally photographs of my work as and when I'm allowed to share it or when something's about to come out. And it's just me constantly retweeting anyone saying anything remotely nice about me. Uh, <laughs> uh, and then it's lots of pictures of my dog and occasionally being cross about things. Perfect. Uh, there's one last thing I should probably ask you uh, that people would want to know is obviously there has been recent news that Ben Wheatley will be making uh, yes. the, Me- the Meg 2. You obviously worked on uh, 47 metres down. Is there any chance in the future that you would like to maybe do some more shark work? I mean, man, I'd, I'd jump at the <laughs> chance. I, I got to make bits of live-action shark for 47 metres. Mm-hmm. Like, 
I, I got into the industry too late to make full puppet sharks. Yeah, yeah. They're too too easy and uh, to do very well digitally because they move through water. That's like you know a weightless object is what CG is really best at. Um, I quoted on making a full puppet robotic shark for forty seven meters down, and like it came with the heavy caveat that I knew they weren't going to go for it. <laughs> but God, I'd love to do that. Um, uh, I mean, Ben Ben is very familiar with the efficiency of balancing practical and digital. He has a background in VFX himself, so I can't imagine I get uh, I'd get even if I were on it. I don't necessarily know that <laughs> I'll get to do it, but if I were on it, I don't know if there would be a practical shark. But whenever a shark physically touches people, that's when you need bits of shark. So you know, fingers crossed. And who who knows how big the Meg in Meg Two is going to be? Exactly. Uh, get to do oh. some meter long shark teeth. <laughs> Or even if it's a shark, I heard recently someone say that apparently the book it's based on it's a kraken in the sequel. So, I mean, fuck, I would, <laughs> I'd give my eye teeth to make a kraken. That would be amazing. Perfect, Dan. It's been amazing chatting to you. Uh, to everyone listening at home, if you don't listen to the Arrow Video podcast, change that right now because both Dan and Sam always have amazing recommendations and will hurt your bank balance. <laughs> massively <laughs> Dan, thank you so much thank you so much man it's been an absolute joy and there you have it guys my chat with Dan Martin uh, I could have gone on for so much longer with Dan uh, and I, I, pr- I probably would have unfortunately um, time ran out for us uh, apologise if it sounds uh, rushed at all at the end I think um I kind of got panicked because Dan said he was running out of time and then I was like, oh no, uh, and kind of like just just, just just, had my usual kind of mental meltdown that I tend to do about most things, but it was an absolute joy. Yeah, there's, there's so much to um, talk about with Dan and he's worked on some fantastic project, projects. A lot we didn't get to talk about. Um, there's a whole career of a chunk of his career where he was making films with ben wheatley doing some of the effects for that and yeah i'll drop dan's imdb uh, page in the show notes as well so you can you can see all of that but uh hopefully at some point in the future dan will be back on the podcast we discuss something off mic so that will be an absolute joy if that comes to pass And in the spirit of the Arrow Video podcast, I'm going to give you two recommendations based on Colour Out of Space. Uh, One of them happens to be an Arrow title and deals very much in the body horror and is somewhere down the lineage of H.P. Lovecraft. And that is Brian Usner's 1989 film, Society. Uh, I won't tell you much about it, but yeah, you can find that on blu-ray through arrow or you can get that through the arrow video uh, channel through amazon prime or on shudder at the moment so definitely check that one out and the other one is actually a recommendation i got from the arrow video podcast and uh dan said on that that it was a influence on nicholas cage's performance in color out space and that is matango the 1963 Ishiro Honda film, uh, which is titled on Amazon Prime at the moment. If you want to search for it, uh, it's on there for free. It is Attack of the Mushroom People. Again, it's a fantastic kind of body horror tale with some hallucinogenic imagery and just people going stir crazy on an island. So you very much can see the through lines between that and Colour Up Space. If you want to keep up to date with the podcast, with upcoming guests, films, and special interviews like this, please do follow me at Caged In Pod on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you want to kind of like just have a chat, please do come over onto Twitter. We're always like there's a good community of people. We're always kind of having a a chat about films and uh, Nick Cage or otherwise just kind of opinions and stuff like that and it's yeah it's a it's a it's a fun fun uh, community and you can always get in touch by email which is cagedinpod at gmail.com and if you'd like to support the podcast you can do that in various different ways but one of them is real simple nice and easy is rate review and subscribe on apple podcasts that really does help 
get the word out because this could be somebody's favorite podcast they just don't know about it yet other ways in which you can support the podcast is patreon.com forward slash caged in pod or you can go over to caged in podcast.limitedrun.com to get one of the limited edition superman caged in prints which was designed by previous guest and fantastic comic book artist tim hornsby so as always guys i have been petrospatsilibus i have been caged in you have been amazing catch you next week bye-bye This podcast is presented by the Breadcrumbs Collective, home of the Pod Charles Cinecast, Caged In Coppola Connections, A Droop Town Limery Main, Franchised, and many more to come. Our shows are all presented ad-free and made possible by listeners like you. Please support our shows by subscribing, leaving ratings and reviews, and becoming patrons at patreon.com. If you'd like to learn more about Breadcrumbs, head over to breadcrumbscollective.com. Breadcrumbs. It's more than a podcast network. It's family.